Now the, uh, the seating arrangement is a little bit awkward this morning because we're set up for our Thanksgiving meal, so I guess just do your best to find a place and you can turn your chairs and uh, we'll try to leave some time at the very end to straighten out our settings if we get them out of whack, but... All right, everybody, I'm going to go ahead and uh, start with a word of prayer. Let's, let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active. And as we think about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the way that your, war, your word formed the people of God, we thank you for it and we ask for your enlightenment. Bless us, Lord God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you guys doing with your Bible reading? Okay, Romans 5, five. made it through Acts, good, trucking on through. How about the rest of y'all, what are you reading? Job, okay. First Samuel, Ken, what about you? Okay, Luke 8. Oh, that's cool, that's cool, I'm making my way through, uh, I'm in 2 Corinthians and I read uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6 this morning. Uh, just some great stuff from the Apostle Paul about uh, the great exchange where uh, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That really is, uh, if you want to, that's as good as John three sixteen. if you want to summarize the gospel in one short little verse, is that, God put our sins on Jesus and gave us the righteousness of God through him, through faith in him. Isn't that cool? Well, good. I want to encourage you. Be active. Read your Bible. If you got off track this week or maybe this month or whatever, uh, it's getting busy with holidays and everything else, jump back on. There's always time to jump back on the train. Uh, don't feel bad for the ones you missed. Uh, be encouraged about the ones that you have looking forward. Well, this week we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books. And I want to begin with a pop quiz on First and Second Chronicles. Tim did such a good job of teaching on Kings and Chronicles that I am sure you will know the answer to these questions. Okay, now, while First and Second Kings covered the history of Israel, the ten northern tribes, First and Second Chronicles focuses on the history of A, Israel, so also Israel, B, Judah, C, Egypt, or D, Assyria. Which one is it? Judah. Okay, that was too easy. I think we're going to make it a little bit harder next one. It is Judah. Okay. Who was in charge of David's treasuries? Was it Asmaveth, the son of Adiel? Was it Jonathan, the son of Uzziah? Was it Bukiah, the son of Heman, pictured here? Genaliah, the son of Jeduthun. Anybody? Anybody? Bathsheba? No, it was not Bathsheba. She was not in charge of anything. All right, well, that was, you know, Tim? I, that's a hard question. I'm just teasing you. All right, it is actually a trick question 
because as Maveth was in charge of the city treasuries, well, Jonathan uh, was the, in charge of the country treasuries, and Bukiah and Gedaliah were both musicians. So I can see that you need to pay closer attention as you read First and Second Chronicles. That's why we're here. Well, now we come to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What do you know about the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? When I mention those books, what, if anything, comes to mind? And we're preaching through Nehemiah right now, so maybe something from the sermon series came to mind. A wall? The wall? Good. What else? Ezra and Nehemiah. Anything, anything? Exiles come home. The priests. Yep. Ezra was a priest. And it was about a lot of priests in there. What else? Intermarriage. Intermarriage. Yes. What about intermarriage? You're right. But what else? Is that were they uh, big fans of intermarriage or were they against intermarriage? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah were against. No. Yes, they were against it. <laughs> yes, the people were very enthusiastic uh, with intermarriage, but Ezra and Nehemiah were against it very much. Anything else? Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, uh, most often when a pastor announces a sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah, you might as well take out your checkbook because you're about six months away from breaking ground on a new sanctuary. I am the exception to that rule. I have uh, perhaps foolheartedly jumped into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah without any plans of building a new sanctuary or anything. But... Is that what God intended for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Are these the building campaign portions of the scriptures where we learn how to follow the example of Ezra and Nehemiah by building bigger and better sanctuaries replete with rock climbing walls and half pipes for the youth group, more comfortable seating for the seniors, and extensive Wi-Fi access so that mom and dad can use a particularly uninspiring moment in the sermon to check up their kids on the iSavior nursery app on their phone. That is a real thing. Now, while we may be tempted to summarize Ezra and Nehemiah with a lyric, all in all, it's just another brick in the wall, let me suggest that there's more here than ancient advice for modern building campaigns. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the rebuilding of a city, but more than that, we see the rebuilding of a new community. We see the foundations being laid for a new Jerusalem. But more than that, we see the foundations being laid for the new Jerusalem, which we read about in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. Ezra and Nehemiah laid the foundations for a temple that would one day be destroyed. Do you know when the temple was destroyed that they rebuilt? Anyone know? Well, the new temple, the first one was destroyed in 586. The new temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Remember, Jesus prophesied that. But they also laid the foundations for the true temple, Jesus Christ who would be destroyed only to be rebuilt on the third day. Do you remember that passage from John 2? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and on the third day I will rebuild it. And they said, that's impossible. It took 
40 years for us to rebuild the temple. And, but then John notes parenthetically, but the temple that he was speaking of was his body. So Jesus is the true temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. So these books, talking about the physical temple on the earth, are preparing us for the true temple, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, let's talk about some of the historical background of Ezra and Nehemiah. These two books record the last events of the Old Testament period. If you remember the ending of 2 Chronicles, the city of Jerusalem had been captured and burned. Do you remember that? However, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, we read the beginning of a great reversal. Cyrus made a proclamation. Somebody read it. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. So that is the ending of 2 Chronicles. So then Ezra and Nehemiah pick up the story. The people who had been exiled were allowed to return to the promised land. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the Israelites' return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding that needed to take place in Jerusalem to make it a viable city, a city of worship and peace. All right, we're going to talk about the authorship, composition, and date the unity of Ezra and Nehemiah. Though they are separated in our Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah were believed to be originally one book. While Origen was the first attested scholar to differentiate between the two books, it was not really until the Middle Ages that the books were separated in Hebrew Bibles. Until that time, they were considered one book with Nehemiah 3.32 as the numerical center of those two books. That is literally the half point of those books. The last chapter of Nehemiah 3 uh, marks the dividing line. So, who wrote Ezra and Nehemiah? When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you might notice that the account shifts between first person and third person voices. That seems to indicate that the book was the product of several sources compiled to recount the history of the Israelites' return from the exile. Now, just a quick note, that is not to say that these books are anything less than the inspired or inerrant word of God. We believe that the documents themselves are inspired, whether they were written by one man being moved by the Holy Spirit or by several people who were moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, what is the most famous example in the New Testament of a book that was compiled through the gathering together of several sources. Do you know? Luke. Luke. How do we know? Yeah, in the very first uh, verses of Luke, we are told, uh, you know, from the very beginning, oh, excellent Theophilus, I have uh, attempted to uh, take up an accumulation of all the sayings and doings of Jesus that happened from the first until the last. Very loose paragraph. But he's taking different sources and putting them together to put together this story that uh, use of different sources in no ways uh, denigrates the inspired nature of the book. Okay, Ezra and Nehemiah contains 
a historical review in the third person, that's Ezra 1 through 6, Ezra's memoirs, Ezra 7 through 10 and Nehemiah 8 through 10, Nehemiah's memoirs, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 7 and 11 through 13 of the book of Nehemiah, and then miscellaneous lists and letters, for example, an inventory of items used for worship, a list of the first wave of returning exiles, a letter to King Artaxerxes in uh, chapter 4, and it should probably be noted that Ezra 2 is repeated almost word for word in Nehemiah chapter 7. Those two lists are almost exactly the same. All right, some important dates. Ezra's mission began in 458 B.C. Nehemiah's mission began in 445 B.C. And the book was likely completed in its final form by somewhere around 300 B.C., so roughly 300 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, why, why, given the historical background, why do you think that Cyrus, the king of Persia, would allow the exiles to return home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls of the city? Why do you think that that, that seems sort of strange, doesn't it? It's sort of out of left field. They're uh, in, uh, in Assyria. Uh, they're with the, the Persians. Uh, why would he allow them to return to Jerusalem to build the temple and the walls of the city? Yes, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. Ultimately, this was a great miracle uh, of God's grace. He was he who motivated. But I also want to highlight a few kind of secondary political considerations which might have made that a plausible idea to the king of, of Persia. During the middle of the 5th century BC, there was a major revolt in Egypt. Seeing an opportunity to capitalize on the revolt, the Greek Delian League, headed by Athens, also revolted and attempted to strengthen their Mediterranean interests by aiding the Egyptians in the battle to overtake Memphis. Okay, does that make sense? So the Egyptians rebel. The uh, Athenians, the Greeks, say, ah, this is an opportunity to weaken the king of Persia. So they kind of align themselves with one another. Uh, the picture is of a Persian empire that had problems on its western flank. If empire had a strong friend in a reconstructed Israel, the city could serve as a garrison against Egypt and Greece. Does that make sense? If you look at the map, you see, do you see where, uh, where Israel is on the map, just kind of below Tyre? Now, that location is a place that could be a buffer for the Greeks coming from the north and from the Egypts that are coming from the south. If essentially those two nations make like a pincer movement, they're just about going to meet in the city of Israel. Probably the Egyptians would get to them first, but the point is they wanted to have a strong friend in the city of Israel. So if they could allow the city to be rebuilt and strengthened, then that would be advantageous to the king of Persia. Now, I point this all out to say uh, that God works and often he works using means. 
secondary means, secondary factors. So the king of Persia might have had no respect or honor at all for God, no sense of the Holy Spirit working in his life. But God used this political circumstance in order to drive the king to do ultimately what God, the great king of heaven and earth, wanted him to do. So this is kind of an aside, but as you read the headlines and the newspaper stories and you see the things that are happening in the world, it can be very easy to be discouraged. You could say, oh my goodness, this political event happened or this event happened in our country. Oh, what is going on? God is completely sovereign and in control of all these things. Uh, we're playing checkers. He's playing 3D chess. You know, he's, he's, he's got a million things going on. He sees 400 moves down the road, and we often are overwhelmed because we just say, see what's happening in the headlines of the day. So don't be discouraged. Trust God. He's got a plan. He did back then. He still does now, and he can do miraculous things. Okay, literary analysis. Though we uh, already saw that there are various genres at play in Ezra and Nehemiah, we've got letters and royal edicts and lists, etc. The dominant genre of the book is that of memoir. You remember, oftentimes as we've been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, you read first-person accounts. He says, then I saw the city, then I decided to do this. Both Ezra and Nehemiah wrote lengthy mem memoirs that recount great events that they observed and in which they participated. Now note for those people who are literature fans, if you like to read literature, these books are memoirs and not autobiographies because an autobiography focuses more on the person who observed the events while memoirs focus more on the events themselves. Okay, does that make sense? So this is not strictly speaking an autobiography of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Oftentimes we get very little insight into what they were thinking or, or feeling about these events. We get a, an account of what they saw. The focus on what God, is on what God is doing, not strictly speaking on the person themselves. Ezra and Nehemiah is essentially made up of three parts. We have the goal initiated, Cyrus's decree to build the house of God. The goal undertaken, which is the uh, community rebuilds the uh, altar and the temple in the midst of op op opposition. Excuse me. Ezra returns to rebuild a community in the midst of sinful rebellion and intermarriage. And then Nehemiah returns to rebuild the city walls in the midst of opposition. Do you remember who opposed him? Very strenuously. Sanballat, Tobiah. Tobiah, and an Arab fellow. His name starts with a, a G. Do you remember him? Geshem. Geshem the Arab. Those three guys were like three rocks in Nehemiah's shoe throughout the whole time. They constantly opposed him. They, were con they threatened him and they ridiculed him. Bad guys. And then finally we have the goal reached. The people celebrate the completion of, of the reconstruction effort according to God's word. Just a note for you, I think I mentioned it later in this, that we are starting that part today in worship. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we have the reading of God's word, which begins to reconstitute Israel as the people of God. So we are right toward the very end with, with that section. Okay, main characters... 
Ezra was a faithful priest who was focused on temple life. He focused on the separation of the clean and the unclean. He emphasized the distinction between the holy people of God and the pollution or uncleanness attached to the surrounding people, particularly the Canaanites. Who were the Canaanites? Do you remember who they were? Canaanites? Anybody? Anybody? Yes, the Canaanites were essentially the original inhabitants of the promised land. When uh, Joshua came through to chase the people out, to kill the people who were living in the promised land, those people were the Canaanites. So they're a people group that's pretty, uh, they come up over and over again in the story. Now, Ezra was a gentle, thoughtful man, much like an ancient Michael Landon. He just, he wanted peace and he wanted to teach the people of God. He was very priestly. Uh, Ezra was appalled to learn that many Jews, even priests, were intermarrying with foreign people. After hearing about such activity, we read Ezra 9.3. Somebody read it. Right? See, this is post-beard. He already pulled the hair out of his beard. He was so appalled at what was happening. Right? Now, the next main character, if Ezra was likely to pull his own hair out when he was upset, Nehemiah was more likely to pull your hair out when he got upset. Somebody read Nehemiah 13, verse 25. Okay, so you see the difference? Uh, Ezra gets upset and he pulls his own hair out. Nehemiah gets upset, he pulls your hair out. Okay, it's a little bit of a different, two different characters. Uh, Nehemiah was an emotional person. When he heard that the walls of the, and gates of Jerusalem were lying in ruins, he wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, why such a strong reaction? The city had been in ruins for more than 100 years. Why would he be so upset about this? Well, Nehemiah couldn't stand the shame and disgrace of that broken condition. He saw the city in ruins, and for him, it reflected on the glory of God. And so he was such a consumed with a zeal for God and his house that he mourned and wept over this destruction. Now, who can tell me the name of another person for whom zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. Jesus, right? What, what famous scene uh, predated that, that statement in the Gospels? What did Jesus do? Say it louder. My house should be a house of prayer. Right. So my house should be a house of prayer. And what did he do before he said that? Chase the money lenders out of the, out of the temple. Um, and so, again, we see echoes of Jesus. All right, some we're going to move on now to theological themes. The first theological theme is a shift in emphasis from leaders to the community. From leaders to the community. All the Old Testament books that we have seen so far have been marked by the presence of charismatic individuals. 
People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, the judges, Ruth, Samuel, David, Solomon, just to name a few. We have charismatic leaders leading the people. Now, though Ezra and Nehemiah are charismatic individuals, both are absorbed into the community. God uses the community to rebuild the temple and the city walls. And the people celebrate these accomplishments through communal worship services and the making of a national covenant with the Lord. Okay? You see the the shift from the charismatic individual to the focus on the community as a whole. Second theological shift is a shift from holy temple to holy city. Once the temple was rebuilt, we almost expect the book or the books to end. The book continues, however, with the building of the walls of Jerusalem, which are then consecrated by the priests, making Jerusalem a holy city. Once the temple, city, and walls were rebuilt, the people celebrated with music, choirs, and sacrifices and a covenant renewal ceremony. The city became a virtual temple blurring the line between the sacred and the secular. So the whole city was essentially a temple to the living God. All right, another theological themes, a shift from oral to written authority. In the post-exilic community, which is the community of Ezra and Nehemiah, post-exile, the written word begins to take center stage. The plot of Ezra and Nehemiah is moved along by letters to and from Persian kings. Great lists are compiled for those who returned and served in various capacities. But above all else, it is the reading of the written law of God that serves as the climax to this great return. The people are exiled because of their failure to obey God's law, and now the written law is that which binds the people together as a new community, a holy city. We're going to talk about that today in Nehemiah chapter 8, that it's the written word of God that binds the people together. They don't simply say, uh, Ezra prophesied to us, they say, Ezra, go get the books of the, of the law. Go get the books of Moses. Read to us so that we can understand God's word. All right, next theological theme is building two walls. The most obvious wall built in Ezra and Nehemiah is Nehemiah's wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. It was a physical wall that separated the people of God from their enemies, but... Ezra built a wall too. Ezra's wall was the law of God that spiritually separated Israel from their unclean neighbors. Essentially, Ezra's spiritual wall constituted a people fit to live within Nehemiah's physical wall. Does that make sense? So uh, it's not just the wall that that Nehemiah builds... It's the spiritual wall that Ezra builds, forbidding uh, marriage with people who are not part of the covenant community, uh, separating them to be a holy people. All right, theological themes. Here's the big one. We'll focus 
most of the rest of our time on this one. A holy community without walls constituted by the Son of God who is the Word made flesh. Okay? A holy community without walls, that's us, constituted by the Son of God who is the Word made flesh. All right, if you were writing the book of Nehemiah, would you have included Nehemiah 13? Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, I'm going to, you just kind of keep your finger in this while I des describe what, what's happening here. We won't read the whole chapter. Uh, Nehemiah 13, the holy city has been consecrated by God's word. The people have celebrated with a great and majestic worship service, culminating with a covenant renewal and a promise that this time things will be different. And then we have a story about Nehemiah returning from a business trip in Babylon only to discover that the high priest Eliashib had been letting his non-Israelite relative Tobiah, remember him, live in the temple like some sort of ancient Near Eastern Cato Kalin. <laughs> Nehemiah 13 verse 8. Somebody read it from the Bible or on your screen. Right? This guy was uh, crashing on the couch inside the, the temple. That should not be. Then we read about a labor dispute that arose between the people and the temple musicians. The people stopped paying the mu mu musicians and they went home to their farms. Nehemiah fixed that problem as well. I just noted that's not him actually fixing the problem. But given Nehemiah's uh, di uh, disposition, it could be. Then we read that the people were conducting business on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah put a stop to things by locking the city doors and threatening the foreign merchants who slept outside the doors, waiting to do business the following day. Somebody read Nehemiah 13, 21. Right? So he says, hey, listen, if you don't get out of here, there's going to be problems. I'm going to come out there. I'm going to lay hands on you. And that's not like, you know, when we send a missionary off to the foreign, uh, you know, we're going to lay hands on you and pray. Oh, no, no praying. It was going to be more fists than hands. All right. Now, the last straw was when the people started intermarrying with foreign people again. After all of this they start remarrying foreign people again. Somebody read Nehemiah 13, 25. And I consulted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take your daughters for your sons or for yourself. Now, if you're listening to the recording online, that was my mom reading, and she read that very smoothly. I've heard things uh, like that growing up, you know, about... Uh, <laughs> you shall not do this! 
The question Nehemiah begs is whether the people will go down the same path that led them to exile in the first place. Have they endured the horrors of the exile, which were very horrific? You can go read the book of Lamentations. It's a terrible thing. Have they endured this for nothing? Can these people ever be a holy people for God's own possession? The open question is answered by God himself through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that the people would become a holy people, set apart permanently, not because of their own covenant keeping, but because of Christ's blood, which we have called the new covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to God and to form us into a new community, a community delineated from the world, not by ethnicity, but by faith. Somebody read 1 Peter 1, verse 3. And then 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Doesn't that sound uh, very much like the story of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and the return of the people? Uh, he brought, God brought his people back from the exile into the city of God in order for them to become a people. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the covenant. They sinned. They defiled the temple. They did all these terrible things. And so God said, I am going to make you a people. Not through your covenant keeping, but through my covenant keeping. I'm going to send Jesus, who died on the cross essentially as a covenant breaker in order to reconcile actual covenant breakers like us to the holy God. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it's Jesus who reconstitutes us as part of the people of God. Nehemiah 13 shows us that God's law could never ultimately build a wall that would make us permanently holy. We've all violated God's law and become permanent outsiders, separated from God and at odds with one another. And so God himself came down to us in Jesus and tore down the wall of separation between the holy of holies and the rest of creation. Now, through Jesus, we can all have access to God. Somebody read Mark 15, 37 through 39. So do you see? The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about building a wall, spiritually and literally, that would separate God's people from the outsiders. Jesus comes and he tears down, the, he creates a new people 
by tearing down a wall, so to speak, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where God is, from the people outside. So that outsiders could become insiders, so that people who are not part of uh, God's family by ethnicity could be brought in by faith. Nehemiah 13 also shows us that it takes more than a wall to make us God's people. The word of God that now constitutes us as a people is not the law, which we can never keep, but the gospel that is ours by grace through faith in the word made flesh. The gospel declares to us, you are a new creation because of the eternal word, God's own son, Jesus. Because we are a new people by faith, Jesus demolishes the ethnic and cultural walls that separated Jews and Gentiles. We have one salvation in Jesus, one Holy Spirit given to all who believe, and one reconciliation with God the Father, who is the one Father of all who have faith in His one and only Son. Someone read Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. All right, some conclusions. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of a people's return from exile. Delivered by God's grace, formed by God's word, they are now made a new worshiping community, rebuilding the broken walls that made them a holy people of God's own possession. Uh, Though the story ends on a crescendo of praise, the melody remains unresolved as the sins that led to the exile continue to plague God's covenant community. But in, in Christ Jesus, we have the resolution of the great love song. In Jesus, we have been returned from the exile of our sin and rebellion. Though our sins separated us from a holy God, in Jesus, we have the true word that constitutes us as a forgiven people with unlimited access to the holy of holies. Though our obedience could never make us a perfect community, by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit makes us one new community, a singular community of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, old and young. The exiles returned to a new city, a new Jerusalem. In Christ, we too have a new city. I'll read Hebrews 12, 22 through 25. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him 
who is speaking. Any questions? Ezra Nehemiah? Ezra Nehemiah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's such a beautiful picture of also how God saved us individually and mm-hmm. then us in the family. It's just a really beautiful um, picture to me that, you know, that just struck me today. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it, that is really neat that it's not, it's not about uh, God sending great charismatic leaders to essentially uh, do the Christian thing for us and then we sort of like latch on to that person. It's a... Uh, it's a, this great democratizing effect, uh, for lack of a better word, that happens through God's grace. It's for all people. Yes? I just didn't quite, the, the order of the kings of Persia, it, it was Darius that conquered Babylon. Mm-hmm. You're going to stretch me. I think I know it, but I'll, uh, you ask me away. Darius? And then Cyrus. Mm-hmm. So it was after Darius. Yes. Esther. No, I, I know I knew this and I went through it, but it was confusing even when I went through it. David, do you remember the order of the kings? I, it was in the some of the commentaries on Nehemiah, the order of the kings. Yeah, you might if you grab a study Bible or uh, look it up. I've got some commentaries back there that clearly uh, delineate the order of the kings, who was first and who was second. Gotcha. But I've got a commentary that makes some list, whether how accurate it is. Um, that I'm happy to share with you to kind of break down the timeline. It's a little bit confusing because you have uh, Darius and you have Cyrus and then you have Ahasuerus who was the king during Esther's uh, time, but I can't remember exactly. I think he falls between the two. Uh, There's a little, there's people getting killed and there's all, you know, traveling and also it's, I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the movie 300 and all that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so sorry I don't have the better answer for that. Yeah, Dave. Yes. That was the guy that lived in OJ's house. Do you remember that? He lived in the garage. Yeah, his, oh, his pool house. Yeah, he was this kind of like bumming around actor that lived in his, randomly lived in O.J. Simpson's pool house. Uh, yeah, he probably witnessed the murder, but then uh, once he realized he wouldn't be able to live in the pool house anymore, his, uh, his memory got a little bit uh, fuzzy, and then he was like, whoa, I can't remember, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. 
All right, anything else? Well, we're, we'll end a little bit early today. Uh, it's 9.35. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then when you're done, before you leave, they, they took great pains to arrange all of this very beautifully, so uh, we will rearrange the settings on the tables and make it look nice, and then we'll be ready for uh, our meal after the worship service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that even though we are covenant breakers by nature and by choice, that you have fully kept the covenant, that you have died as our substitute in our place, that you've paid the penalty for our sins, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the new covenant in your blood. We thank you that we are now, uh, we who are not a people, have now become the people of God through your grace. We pray, Lord, that we would live as faithful citizens of that kingdom here in this world that often does not know you and is often hostile and aligned against your people and your church. I pray, Lord God, that through our love, many of your enemies would be brought into the church, even as we, Lord God, were loved by you when we were your enemies. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And most of all, we thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Hey, you're welcome. Oh, thanks, Jeannie. Appreciate it.